We, we are, we're taking a big jump today. We are jumping from Genesis all the way into Exodus. We are, we're, we're taking a large leap uh, as we continue in this sermon series. So uh, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Exodus 19 and get kind of ready for that. We're, we're taking a major turn, a major leap. We've studied that God, God's covenant with creation, who uh, he makes ultimately with all of creation, but he makes it with Abraham, or not Abraham, sorry, my mind is... Adam. He made it with Adam as a representative of all humanity. Uh, but then we see him reaffirm that covenant with Noah and all of creation. But, but again, Noah and his family are those, those ones that immediately are applied to. And then we studied God's covenant with, with Abraham. And I, I just want you to remember, we're not simply studying these covenants to understand the covenants. This is part of a larger, a larger series, a larger plan, a larger thing that we're looking at. What, what, what I'm convinced that God's people need is to recognize that God is God at all times, regardless of the circumstances that surround us. It seems to me over these last several years uh, that, that, that we, have, we have watched um, the decline in morality in America. We've watched the, the, the struggles, uh, the, the separation of, let me say, say that difference, not really a separation, the distancing of a of a political party that many of us would have stood alongside and said, hey, this is the place we can put our vote, we can feel good about. In many ways, it's abandoned many of its moral compasses. It's, it's, it's left us in many ways. And so as we've watched that happen, I believe that we've felt a lot of instability when COVID happens and the distancing of people in the church and all of these things. We, we, are, we are finding, and it's not just me, it's not just my opinion. I'm, I'm hearing this from every pastor friend, every church leader that I have, they're all talking about the same, same kind of things. I'm reading these articles from, from other church leaders. There seems to be a, a, we feel shaken. We feel unstable. We feel like things have gone wrong, that somehow, some way we're losing something. And, and again, I, I, I've shared this once, but it really came home to me when my dad passed away last summer that I felt like I needed to know something. I needed some certainty in something. And God met me in that and said, you've got certainty in me. You know me. You know the one who knows. You know the one who's trustworthy. You know me. And so what I, I, I became convinced that we as a church need in a season where we have felt it, where we have, where we have said goodbye to some dear friends and, and, and really people that mean a lot to us, uh, where we have suffered hardship, where we have lost relationship where we have been accused of horrific things at times, I am convinced that the best thing for us is not to have a 12-step program to achieve some great success, but to sit down and know the God who is. That's what we're doing. And so I'm teaching this from a perspective of progressive covenantal theology. That's the view I hold. I can't help but teach it from that way. I can't say something that I don't believe is true. Now, I say things that aren't true all the time because I'm human. <laughs> you get that, right? I make mistakes. But I will not intentionally say something I don't believe is true. I'll teach with conviction those things that I do believe are true. But I don't, I'm not trying to shape a church to be progressively covenantal in its theology. I am seeking to point you to a God who's always God. So that you and I can sit in peace together before this God and enjoy him the way he's intended. 
So that's the whole purpose. So we start, you know, seeing God as the Alpha and Omega in Revelation. We turn to see God as, as the creator who started all things and, and who he tells us he's holding all things together, right? Like he's the one that rules it all. We saw him create and now we're seeing his covenants and seeing him enter into relationship primarily with people who, well, even, even Adam and Eve in a sinless state didn't deserve relationship with him but he was gracious enough, to, gracious enough to extend it. You and I definitely don't, need, don't, don't deserve relation. We need relationship. We don't deserve relationship with him, yet he's been kind enough and gracious enough to extend it because that's who he is. So let's, let's look at these covenants, not simply to, to, to build out a, a framework of theology, although if it's helpful, I, I'm, I'm glad it is, but so that we can know God, the God who is who always has been and always will be the Alpha and the Omega. All right? So let's know him. Let's see him. Let's look to him. So, so we're jumping now to Exodus 19 to see this next covenant, a covenant that now he's... So, so we've studied with, with Adam. We've studied his covenant with Noah. We've studied his covenant with Abraham. And we're turning now to a covenant with the nation of Israel. And it's a covenant that's in... It, there's continuity and discontinuity. It's connected, but it's not the same as the covenant with Abraham. So, so Israel are, are a people who have a land promised to them, not because of God's covenant with them immediately, but because of God's covenant with Abraham, and they are his descendants. They are in his line. They are from the line of Isaac and Jacob, who God also affirmed covenant with. But their covenant is different. It's distinct, and it, it, it draws him even closer. And in fact, he does something with Israel that he's not done with Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He actually tells them his name. Now, we've read the Lord's name repeatedly through the Scripture, but it's because Moses is writing it. God did not reveal himself that personally until it came to Israel. And so, so he's going to treat them differently. He's going to step in and, and, and not just add to a covenant. He's going to make a specific covenant with a specific people for a specific purpose, as he draws them even closer, but becoming closer to them himself and, and, and drawing them closer in relationship to himself. So Exodus 19, 1 through 5. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles', eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be, treasure, be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called to the elders of the people, and he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people 
And consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on the Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned. No, no hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Let's pray. Father, would you meet us now? Let's teach us. That your spirit would open our eyes to give us. Uh, the eyes of our heart to just give us understanding, to give us wisdom, to reveal to us the truth of your word, the purpose uh, of your work. And Father, that ultimately that we, would go, that we would gain greater confidence in who you are and what you're doing in the world. That regardless of our circumstance, that regardless of the situation, that we can look to you, our Savior, our King, our Lord, our God. There's not a moment that we're out of your will or your, your way, that you are at work. We can trust you, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So you probably know the story, or at least familiar with it. It's been popularized even in Hollywood, the movie Ten Commandments, and then the, the movie, uh, it's like a cartoon and animated movie. Uh, I don't remember, the, was it Moses? Maybe it was the Ten Commandments too, I don't know. I just remember the animated Moses, let my people go, you know, and he was talking real deep and powerful. And, uh, so, so the story is popularized uh, in, in, in many ways, but, but I think it would be helpful for us to just remember what precedes this point. For three months they'd been traveling through the wilderness. For three months, they'd, three months to the day, they're coming to, to Mount Sinai, but what had them in the wilderness? It starts all the way back, really, at Abraham. Abraham had been promised by God that he would be a great nation, that his people would be given Canaan. But he was promised by God that it wouldn't happen just as clean and and tied up in a bow as we might like to see. In fact, what we see happen is as, as Abraham's children are born, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and they don't turn out to be great covenant partners with God. They both reveal their own sinful natures. They live a life. They have their own children. And, and in fact, Jacob's children, so jealous of one of his sons in particular, Joseph, that they sell Joseph off into slavery. And Joseph ends up in slavery uh, uh, in, in, um, in, in a house where he's given, given responsibility and power, but in, is then accused of rape and sent into prison. I mean, you think about the story of just the life he lived and, and the uncertainty that he faced and how easy would it be to be discouraged? How easy would it be to begin to think, God, have you forgotten me? And then through a series of events, he's raised up to power to the point that he becomes second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. And a, a plague hits the land, a, a, a famine hits the land, and, and people begin to come to Egypt to be fed. It just so happens that Jacob sends his sons go to Egypt and get some food. And it just so happens that Joseph, the brother that they, they, they pretended was dead, that they had lied to their dad and said, he's dead, that they'd sold into slavery. 
This brother is the one that meets them and feeds them. And he works out this plan that, that they end up coming to him. And, and, and it's so crazy because Israel, in the form of Jacob and his children and their wives and their children, come into Egypt celebrated, received with celebration because they're related to Joseph, the man God had used to prepare Egypt for a famine, the man God had used to make them ready, not just to be fed themselves, but to feed people around them. They, they come in celebrated until Joseph dies and the Pharaoh's put in power that doesn't care anything about Joseph. In fact, the word says that he was forgotten. And Israel becomes a source of fear, a source of contempt. And these people that had at one time been honored were forced into slavery and oppressed and treated as if they were a problem. It might be easy to grow discouraged. Wait a minute. We're related to Abraham. Aren't you supposed to be making sure we're blessed? Aren't you supposed to be doing this work for us? What's going on? Here we are. Where's the land we're promised? They're slaves. By the time of Moses' and Aaron's generation, the Israelite, the Israelites were a nation of slaves. They had never known what it was to live free. You think about it. So we, we're raising kids today that will never know what it is to not have a phone in their hand, right? Technology is just a way of life. It's something that is happening all around us. They'll never know what it is to have to actually look up a phone number in a phone book. There might be people in this room that are above the age of 12 or 13 that have never had to look up a phone number in a phone book. Let me tell you about hard times, <laughs> right? You know, that's, you got it bad when you got to look up a phone number in the phone book. I, I, they will never have, no, they would have never experienced being a people of their own. They would have never experienced life outside of slavery. They would ever, the only thing they would have ever known is oppression and slavery and being someone else's property. But they had these promises. They had this God, this, this covenant that they were looking forward to. They had this expectation. They knew the story of the covenant. They, they were still circumcising their, their sons. At eight days old, they were still circumcising their sons. We know that because in the book of Joshua, it says that up until the time they left Egypt, they were circumcising their sons. So they were seeking to live according to this covenant. They knew the covenant. They knew the promise of deliverance. But all they'd ever known is bondage and slavery. Imagine that life. So imagine what it is to begin to see God working. Somebody, hey, did you hear about this guy Moses that came to the camp? And he's telling, he's telling Pharaoh that we're supposed to be going out and worshiping God. He's, he's calling Pharaoh to let us go. He's done these mighty works. His staff turned to a snake. But all they could see all they could think about was the oppression and the hardships of their slavery. So, so God's on the one hand fulfilling his promise with Abraham. But as we come to this passage, he's not just fulfilling a promise to, in, in his covenant to Abraham. He is drawing the people of Israel close. 
God redeemed Israel from bondage in Egypt and bound them to himself in covenant relationship as his possession and priests in the world. God redeemed Israel from bondage in Egypt and bound them to himself in covenant relationship as his possession and priests in the world. So imagine what they're thinking. God's at work. Something's happening. Man, but as soon as we got our hope up, all Pharaoh did was increase our workload. He just, he took away the straw. He doubled the quota. We have to work even harder now. How's this ever going to work? Has God forgotten us? Is God ignoring us? Is God even able to do this? All we want is freedom. All we want is out of this oppression. All we want is out of this hardship. All we want is to not deal with the hardship that's right here in front of us. Somebody get us out of this. Let us live free. It struck me as I thought about this through the week and actually as I've been thinking through this, coming to this point. There's so much talk about being delivered from oppression. But we, I don't think we speak nearly as much or think nearly as much about what we're being delivered to as we are talking about what we're being delivered from. See, I think in some way, and this is, this is very American, I think it's, it's probably very cultural to us. I think as we talk about freedom, as we talk about being free and out from under oppression, we're, we're really just talking about being our own authority, getting to rule ourselves, and who are you to tell me what to do kind of idea. I don't want oppression because I want to be free, and that means I get to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. But these people, they long for freedom. Did they recognize that being freed from Egypt would immediately bind them in responsible relationship to the Lord under his Godhead, under his Godhood, under his authority, under his command? See, if they're anything like us, which I don't know that they were, but if they're anything like us, I think we've, we, we, have, we have specialized in, in producing victims we live in a place of time that's is, is, is so filled with privilege and prosperity that all we can think about is this little hardship is, I don't like it. So we've made, made it a story of victimhood that people can sympathize with, uh, oppression. It's unfortunate because there really is victimhood, there really is oppression, there really is abuse, there really is horrific things that we do to one another. And because somebody cuts me off in traffic, I play the victim. This is one that's, oh man, I've seen it so real in my life because over these last few weeks of dealing with, with, with uh, phone call centers because, because this person on the other end of the line doesn't have the authority or the ability to give me what I'm paying for from the, from the company that they represent. I feel like a victim. I feel like they're keeping something, taking advantage of me. Any use of authority in a person's life in which they don't appreciate what that authority is calling them to is considered to be oppression. Any authority that doesn't agree with a person's own personal perspective seemed to be abuse. I confronted someone in truth about their sin and was told I was abusing them with my words when I was simply loving them and calling them to something that Christ would have for them. We're so quick to talk about what we have been oppressed by and what's victimizing us and what's abusing us. 
But if our, if our desire for freedom is simply a desire to be our own God, then that's not what God would have for us. God redeemed Israel from bondage in Egypt and bound them to himself in covenant relationship as his possession and his priests in the world. This is a work that he's doing. God's redeeming Israel from bondage. He's doing this work. He's the one behind it. Israel was truly in bondage. They truly were oppressed. They they could do nothing to free themselves. They weren't just being inconvenienced. They weren't just being being, um, uh, uh, told to do something they didn't like. They they, they weren't the kid who had to get out of bed on Saturday morning when they would rather sleep in and, and think that you're such a bad parent, you make me get up in the morning. They were truly oppressed. They were truly victimized. They were truly abused. And they were powerless to change their position. Only by the power of another. God redeemed Israel from bondage. They could do nothing to do it. Listen, the thing is, is that if we're not careful, if we're, if we're not careful to pay attention to this part of the story, if we're not quick to recognize that, that they aren't doing something and becoming God's redeemed people, that God redeemed them and then called them to do something, then we'll misapply this whole covenant. We'll think that we can earn our way into God's good graces or that at one time in history that God said, if you do the right thing, I will save you. They had been saved. They had been redeemed. They had been delivered. He did that work. Not because they deserved it, not because they could earn it, not because he was obligated to, but because he's God and he fulfills his promises. God promised that he would do this work. First, he promised it to Abraham. He promises redemption. First and foremost, he promises it to Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, this actually 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He promised that they were going to be afflicted. He promised that they were going to be taken. He promised that they were going to be living in a land that wasn't their own and that they were going to deal with this. In verse 14, and I didn't put it here. So what's it say? But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. I am going to redeem them. I am going to deliver them. I am going to do this work. Abraham knew at the making of his covenant, Abraham knew that his offspring would suffer something like this. Did he know the detail? Not exactly. Did he know the nation? Not exactly. But God, by his grace, is fulfilling his promise. Remember the the, the initial promise that God made to Abram in in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to bring judgment on these people who have afflicted your offspring. But it's also a promise he'd already made to Moses in Israel. This is what I'm going to do. Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Now I want to point out, the very, in, in the beginning of our passage that we're studying from today, 19 verse 3, It says, The Lord called him to the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen. 
It's past tense. Like it, you've seen it already. It's already occurred. But here he's promising ahead of time. I, you will see. You're going to see this. What I'm going to do. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. He's not doing this because they're Israel. He's doing this because he's got a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great ox of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. You're not going to get to just be free and be your own person and do your own thing and live your own life. No, you're going to be mine. I'm going to be your God. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I'm the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. All they could think about was the hardship. All they could think about was the pain. All they could think about and see was more trouble. And then God delivers them. He he leads them out. And he does this work. So that three months to the day, they walk up to a mountain called Sinai. In which they are going to see and hear from God. The question is, obviously, well, can he do it? Like, they're struggling with this. But over and over, it's his power, God's power to redeem. It's his work. You've seen, you will see what I'm going, going to do to Egypt, and you have seen what, I'm gonna, what I've done to Egypt. But both ways in which he's promising, and now he's saying, you've seen it. God has showed them repeatedly. And Moses coming in is just the initial start. Moses' staff turning to a serpent to show that he's got power. Just the beginning. And there's plagues, total of ten of them. Water to blood, frogs, locusts. But the, the last one, the, the final one, the death of the firstborn of every family in Egypt that didn't observe the Passover rites, and every firstborn of the livestock of those same households. The firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the captive, as it says in the scriptures, the firstborn of all of those livestock. The scripture tells us that there was a, a cry of grief, a, a great cry in Egypt because of that there wasn't a house that wasn't touched by death. Every house had someone dead in it. Now, I think we tend to localize that to like a city. This wasn't just a city. Now, I don't know where the boundaries of Egypt were at this time. But every house in Egypt was touched by death. It's no wonder Pharaoh wants nothing more to do with the Israelites at this point. So he sends them away. Just as God had promised he would, he sends them out. Get 
out, leave. And they leave with great possession. In fact, the, the scriptures tell us that they, that they thwarted the, the Egyptians, that they, that they, that they um, I can't think of the word, but basically they, they took all their stuff. There was defeat, but it wasn't just defeat in getting their things. There was defeat in the destruction of the army. Exodus 14, 30 through 31, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Man, it was bad when, when Pharaoh comes down and increases their quota of bricks and takes away the straw. You're going to have to gather your own stuff and you're going to have to do this yourselves. You're going to have more work to do because Moses is here. Well, when they come up to that Red Sea and they realize there is nothing we can do and they see the army of Egypt behind them and they see the sea in front of them, you can only imagine what in the world are we going to do? And Moses steps out into that sea and the winds blow and the sea begins to part. And they're able to walk through on dry ground. What was striking is the mud didn't slow them down in any way, but the mud was get, getting caught in the wheels of the chariots and slowing the Egyptians down. They walked through on dry ground that had just been covered with water. And when the last one steps out, the seas crash in, and a whole army destroyed. Not just drowned to never be seen again, their bodies begin to float to the top and find their way to the shore. They saw God's power. They saw it. They knew it. We've been delivered not by what we could do, not by. He brought the place, He brought the defeat. And as the Bible shows us that there's even more to understand about what he did in Egypt. He raised Pharaoh to power. Paul tells us, Romans 9, 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you. Pharaoh was in his position. Pharaoh was able to do what he was going to do because God is God. He had a purpose. He had a plan. I raised you up. You think you have power? You're only there because I've allowed you to be there. I raised you up that I might show my power that, that my name might be proclaimed on the earth. Pharaoh wanted his name proclaimed. God says, no, that's not why you're here. That's not the plan I have for you. That's not why I've allowed you to have Israel and, and, and impoverish them and oppress them and bind them in slavery. That's not why I've given them to you. But because through you, I'm going to make my name great. I'm going to show the greatness of my name. And Israel, Israel, you will see. And standing in front of this mountain, he says to them, Israel, you have seen. They knew. They knew this was God's work. They knew that God had redeemed them. But why had God redeemed them? Why would God do this? In part because of his covenant, but also in part because he intends to bind Israel to himself now in covenant. He redeems them from Egypt so they can be his. God bound Israel to himself in covenant as a treasured possession. Then verse 5. Look at, look at what he says. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, to the Egyptians, and how I bore, on, bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be a treasured possession. Not the only nation I own. I own everything. It's all mine. But inside of that, inside of all that I own, you are going to be special to me. Special purpose, special relationship, closeness, intimacy. A kingdom of priests that represent and reflect God. Not, not, not just in, in, in the sense that, hey, there's priests. So you're you're going to have some priests. But all of you are priests. All of you are to, you as a nation are a kingdom of priests. You're all to represent and reflect me to the world around, but you're all to minister before me and as a holy nation. And again, I think when we think of holiness, a lot of times we're talking about, we think, about, think most about the distinction from something instead of the distinction to or the consecration to something. But, but this text, as, the, as, these three, as these three ideas come together, the, the thing is, is when we put all these things together, we get to see that, that really what he's saying is the same thing three different times, three different ways. It, it's, it's a picture that, that allows us to have a three-dimensional view of something that doesn't really have dimension on a page of, of words. A treasured possession, a special possession. Special among all the other things that he owns. A kingdom of priests, a a particular role. A holy nation consecrated to him. He's making them like himself so that they can be representatives and reflections to the world around them. God's binding Israel to himself and himself to Israel that that they would now become to the world what Adam was intended to be, what Eve was intended to be, what you and I, as his image bearers, are intended to be, representatives and reflections of his authority and his greatness. In their book, Peter, uh, Kingdom Through Covenant, Peter Gentry and Stephen Willem highlight this point, and they, they, they write, the covenant entails relationship with God on the one hand and relationship with the world on the other Israel will model to the world what it means to have a relationship with God, what it means to treat others in a genuinely human way, and what it means to be good stewards of the earth's resources. As priests, they will mediate the blessings of God on the world and will be used to bring the rest of the world to know God. Though the language is different, they're still to be reflecting God in the world and enjoying God's presence and relationship. Having been blessed, they're to be blessings. God redeems them to be a holy nation, a treasure possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. But we can see clearly that it's not just this, I'm going to do this and you're going to enjoy this. There's clear expectation. God expected Israel to respond. He expected something from them. If you will obey my voice, he expects obedience. Live under my authority. Do what I tell you to do. And, and, and he is about to, he's not going to leave them wondering what that is. If we were had time and we could walk through and, and read the, the next chapter, chapter 20, it's the Ten Commandments. And from the Ten Commandments, we move into chapter 21, where, where he turns at the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21, all the way through to the, towards the end of chapter 23, he lays out the judgments, where, where we have the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words is what they're actually called in the Hebrew. We call them commandments, that's okay. But the Ten Words, they have the Ten Words, 
expressed in, in chapter 20, and then in, it, towards the end of 20, all the way into chapter 23, we begin to see judgments, the, the, the judgments that give case study and application of the ten words or the Ten Commandments. And so he's going to tell them, this is what I expect of you. This is what it looks like to live before me in obedience. These are the commands that I expect you to obey. But we, we, we need to remember. We need to be very careful. Obedience isn't a way in which we earn something. In fact, I, I, love, a, I love the quote by Alec Maltier. I came across this in my study this week. He, he writes, Obedience is not our part in a two-sided bargain but our grateful response to what the Lord has unilaterally decided and done. Israel's in slavery. They are oppressed. They are bound. They, got, they can do nothing. God says, I'm going to redeem them. Oh, I've redeemed you. Now obey. You're already redeemed. You, will, you, you can continue to walk with me. Not, not by the bargain of obedience, but simply by responding to me in obedience. I am doing this. I am going to give you these things. Do you want to enjoy them? Do you want to walk with them? Do you want to have them? Obey my voice. It's not a two-sided bargain, but a grateful response to what the Lord has unilaterally done. But it's not just obedience he calls them to. He calls them to holiness. Obey my voice and be holy. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Keep my covenant. Be holy to me. Be, do the very thing that I'm doing for you. He's calling them to holiness. And then he gives them some explanation of that. Consecrate yourself. So, so, so here's what we see happen. God says, you are going to be my holy nation. Act like it. I'm making you holy. I am I am setting you apart unto myself. You are distinct among all the other nations. You are mine. So, so this is a really pitiful, poor analogy. Uh, but but it's, it's just to try to draw, draw some illustration, some application. This is my Bible. It and other Bibles are not the same. No, I don't know that. Well, I don't know why that's in my head. Sorry. This is my Bible. I actually have several Bibles. I've got electronic Bibles. I've got big Bibles. I've got small Bibles. This is my Bible. It is my preferred Bible. It is my treasured possession, even among all the other Bibles I own. Even some that have greater sentimental value. I've got a little Bible that I carry with me around the world. It's been on every continent except two to make the gospel known to people who don't have access to the gospel. I love that Bible because it's so portable, but its words are so small. This Bible, not had it as long as that Bible. It's not as rough and torn up as that Bible. It's not all marked up like another one of my Bibles. But this Bible's special to me. It's so special to me that if I'm going to put it in my backpack, I put it back in the box that I got when I bought it because I don't want the pages all creased. I don't want it torn up because it's special to me. I don't know exactly why. I, I wish I, 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 it doesn't even really matter for the analogy. It just is my Bible. I've consecrated it unto myself. Now, if my Bible was animate and able to do so, I'd say, hey, why don't you put yourself in the box when you go into the backpack so that you stay holy, right? So that you stay consecrated to me, so that you stay pure and ready to be used of me. And that's exactly what God does. He says, I am making you holy. I'm setting you apart to myself. I am making you mine, special and treasured among all the other nations. You are mine. 
You keep my covenant. Act like it. Act like you belong to me. And he gives some explanation here that, hey, I'm coming in three days. Make them ready. Consecrate them. Make them holy unto me. And here's what's interesting. Had they sought to make themselves holy on their own, they would have remained unholy. They were only able to consecrate themselves. They were only able to step in and approach the mountain and walk in this holiness because God had made them holy. So think about this. So we can pretend and we can perform religious acts and religious effort. We can do good deeds as the world would see it. We can, we can live the lives of supposed martyrs, giving ourselves to great causes. But if we aren't first made holy by God, even the most noble act is unholy in God's sight. God says, I have made you holy to the nation of Israel. Now act like it. Consecrate them. Prepare them. Wash. Get ready for this. Don't go near a woman. I don't know how, how crazy they were. Like I don't know how depraved they were sexually, but at a minimum, he's saying, don't even be with your wife. Consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart. I have set you apart. Now set yourselves apart to me. Be ready for this day. As the scripture unfolds in front of us, a cloud settles on the mountain. And the text, I think a lot of people picture the cloud settling on the top of the mountain and the, top, the peak is surrounded. I think that's the picture that we see. But the text would demonstrate that the whole mountain is engulfed in cloud and smoke and there's lightning and thunder. And these people are afraid. He is a holy God. And Moses goes up and he meets with God and he speaks with God and he gets the Ten Commandments and comes down and brings it to him, goes up and comes down. And it comes to the point, Exodus chapter 24, beginning of verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the people, or, or all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. We will live holy lives. We will obey your commands because you have made us your treasured possession. So what does that matter for you and for me? We're not Israel. We don't have this same promise. We can't cling to Moses. I say quit looking to Moses then. Quit looking to Moses for holiness that has to come to you first through God. This is the whole book of Galatians is Paul confronting the Galatian Christians with the fact that they've been deceived by people who would push them back to Moses and to the law. Dave read it this morning. Dave read from that, that book this morning. The, the idea that we cannot make ourselves holy by the attendance of some law or by the pursuit of some law. The only way that the nation of Israel was ever going to be holy was because they had first been made holy. We see that language again in 1 Peter when he says, as the Lord is holy, so you also be holy. The call to this is, it comes to us in Christ. So, so quit running to Moses for your holiness. But look to, the, look to the one that was brought to us through the covenant with Israel. The Savior who lived perfectly according to the law and fulfilled the whole law. We're called to trust in him and him alone. 
Look to Him for your holiness so that you can begin to act and live and pursue holiness. There's a lot of religious people who live in our city, who live in in our neighborhoods, maybe even who come to our church. Lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Trust in Him and Him alone. It's the only way. We're called to that. So quit trying to run to Moses to become holy. We can learn from Moses about what holiness is, but trust in the Lord and the Savior He's provided us. Quit looking for freedom from God and live free to God. You are freed in Christ from sin and bondage and slavery and death. You are free to obey God, to live holy before God. Your sin no longer controls you. You're no longer a slave to it. You've been redeemed. So act redeemed, live redeemed. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 6, that no longer we give ourselves as as members or or participants to sin because we're we're just running back to the slavery. We're, We're running back to the sin that's bound us and enslaved us and destroyed us. In Galatians, he says that for freedom's sake, you've been freed. So live free from sin, but don't try to live free from God. Freedom is living under his authority in, in, in every way. The authority that he has for us civically, the authority he has for us in the church, the authority he has for us in the home. So husbands, model Christ and his authority. Elders, pastors, aspiring leaders, model Christ as a shepherd of his people. And pray for your leaders who only have position because God's allowed it. To be quite honest, there's no command in Scripture to to rebel. There's only descriptive reasons for us to rebel against the authorities God has placed over us. There might be reasons, there, there are good arguments for it, but there's no command, direct command, rebel. If you rebel against the governing authorities that God has placed over you, you need to be certain that you're rebelling in light of the Scripture. Otherwise, you are disobeying the authority of God, who directly has told us, submit to every institution, every human institution. Honor the emperor. Quit looking for freedom from God. Trust that God is in control. Look to be free in God. Stop simply looking to be holy as in separate from this world. God says you're going to be my treasured. He says to Israel, you're going to be my treasured possession. You're going to belong to me. What's amazing is that God didn't take them out of the world. He didn't even clear the land in front of them immediately so that they could walk in and just have it. He tells them, hey, this is going to be a process. This is going to take work. I'm not going to clear the land because if I clear the land and and you aren't able to get there, you, you don't get there in time, it's going to grow up. It's going to be uncontrolled. It needs mankind to rule and subdue it. So I'm going to let them live in all their sinful ways. I'm going to let them be there till you get there. 
and drive them out. We're so convinced that we've got to figure out a way out of the world. When God left us here to act as his representatives, as his treasured possession, as his holy nation, as a kingdom of priests, this language is brought to us again in the book of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. As we've come to Christ, we are being made a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests who are left here to represent and reflect the holiness and the glory of God so that the world who's rebelling and rejecting him will have no excuse because we are here. So be holy unto God. Not holy, just trying to find a way not to be in the world. So much more, so much typology, so many things that we could point to and we're going to have to pick up next week. But brothers and sisters, look at the God who's done this for Israel. What an amazing thing that he did for them. And it pales in comparison to sending his own son to die in our place and for our sin to make us what even Israel wasn't. Let's pray.